throughout the last two centuries. You have many generations of craftsmanship that never change. And so we looked at that and thought, this is exactly how we have to base our work. So we're going to get this property back to life using the same techniques and almost the same families who built it initially. Hello there. If you find yourself looking for a slower way of life, of travels, of connecting to the people and the places around you, you're in good company. Join me, Molly Reese, for season four of our series, a season of celebration and community with families all around the world who welcome us to breathe in the crisp air, sip slowly from a warm mug, and cozy up by the fireplace as we gather around festive memories and merry conversations. This is Stay in Good Company. Today, we're in great company with Druze Antonio Uva, the eighth generation of his family to steward San Lorenzo do Barocal over 200 years, an estate in ancient small farming village, which he has carefully brought back to life as a remarkable hotel of understated luxury, a place to call home where farm and landscape converge in Alentejo, Portugal. Druze, benvido to the show. Happy to have you in our company. Hi, Molly. Thank you so much. Now, before we get to know your family's estate in the heart of Portugal's foothills of Montserrat, we want to get to know you. Can you tell us about yourself, your childhood on the estate with your family, and your personal passions? Baucal is very much connected to our childhood, both in myth and also in the way we lived it, for the very simple reason that the year that I was born, 1975, was the year that, for political reasons, we had the start of democracy in Portugal. And at the start of democracy, sometimes you have some revolutionary governments do some drastic measures. And that's exactly what happened in Portugal in 75, after the revolution we had in 74, which in around November 75, decided to nationalize the great majority of farmlands, uh, a lot of the industry and a good part of the banking system. So I was born in, on the 2nd of December of 75, so I was actually born in the midst of turmoil where my family lost the estate after having owning it since the 1820s. And so the property, the estate was nationalized and then squatted. And then we only got it back in 84, so nine years after that. And during that time, us as a family, we would have our family home, which is about 10 kilometers from Bahokal, the estate, but the estate itself was occupied. And so I would hear these incredible stories of generations past, and, but I wasn't actually living in the estates. And by then, my family had moved to Lisbon, and so we would come the weekends. It's about a two-hour drive from Lisbon. And we would stay at the family house, but not really at the estates. And so what's so interesting about this is that there was a certain myth about how life was there for decades and past generations. And so when we got it back finally in the 80s, when Portugal joined the European Union and there was a privatization policy by the government at that time, that was actually one of the conditions for Portugal and Spain to join the European Union. We got back in a state that was very much derelict in ruins. You know, uh, squatted properties can be in a messy state after nine years. Then we went back and there were the majority of the buildings were in ruins. 
And so at the time, my parents had the farming side of the business restarted, you know, the vineyards, the olive groves, cattle, etc. But the farm buildings, which are incredibly beautiful, there was a really no plan. So what to do with it? Because they're, they're fairly big farm buildings. Uh, it was a small village. It's back in the 19th century, about 200 people lived there. And so I was at the time, I was way too young, but I went to college abroad. I lived in France and the UK and Spain. And then I decided to come back to Portugal. And this was 2002 and decided to move to Alentejo to our family home just to take some time off and look at this property. If there was a project to be done there so that we would sort of rebuild these beautiful farm buildings and create a project where you would have a symbiosis of the farm activity and sort of rethink everything that was farming. Also, the tourism project on those beautiful farm buildings that needed a lot of work, and also to complete this triangle, an ecology project, where you would think of a larger state like this, it's about 800 hectares, which is something like 2,400 acres. So how do you approach an estate of this size that is a size that's considerable and that was in need of a lot of care, in need of a lot of rethought? So it took me about two years of research. So I got a team together with architects, landscapers, biologists, archaeologists, geologists, farmers, winemakers. So everyone helped to add another layer of information and so after two years, so this was from 2002 to 2004, there was naturally a master plan that is very much what was then executed. So those two years were absolutely fabulous because I got to live in an estate that I learned and gathered so much information, not, not only from our family's heritage, but much more. You know, I learned of Neolithic cultures that 7,000 years ago had settled. There's one major menu, standing stone, which is the centerpiece of a Neolithic settlement inside the property. It's actually a national monument. And there's about 16 dolmens, which are funerary monuments for families where they would bury their ancestors. And then there's a little Roman settlement next to the water lines because the Romans started using irrigation. And then we learned quite a lot about that. And then there were medieval settlements. And then there was the start of industrial farming, and then there were the vineyards and the olive groves, and all of this put together was just a lot of information. And so what was so interesting is that for the first two years, it was just collecting information and try to work with everyone involved to create a master plan, which is still very much what we've now brought to life and what we're still working on. So we've been very faithful with that initial master plan. It's just that farm projects and hospitality projects take ages to come to life when you do it in a certain way, you know, in a thoughtful, slow development approach. That is what we think has to be done in a place like this. Absolutely. I had no idea that there was such tension historically, politically, that you yourself didn't actually have the privilege of necessarily living up on the land, but that you had heard those stories from your parents, from your grandparents on what it was and what it meant to your family. And obviously there was some special significance that drew you back to it and wanting to rebuild it and to renovate it. 
So I am curious, what were those lessons, kind of those stories shared from your past generations that really inspired you to, to follow through in this journey in rejuvenating the estate? One of the most interesting stories is we're the eighth generation, my brother and I. And so I sort of wanted to learn what was the role of the generation. So the first generation was the one who bought this land from the king because in 1820 we had a process in Portugal called the liberalization of the land where the king was sort of forced to sell a good part of his land for political reasons. Why? Because he, I mean, he owns at least a third of the country for his hunting grounds and obviously that wasn't sustainable. And so there was these large properties. Ours at the beginning was 9,000 hectares. So 10 times more of what we have now, meaning that I have a lot of cousins and relatives close to us. So when you sort of look at the first generation, then the second, which were the ones that really started to do winemaking, and then you look at the third, which sort of brought a whole new level of farm innovations that are at the time were very interesting, you know, is the mechanical process of farming, and then the fourth, the fifth. We were very lucky because some of the initial academic works that were done in Alentejo in the 40s and the 50s were done around our area. So there's a brilliant sociologist, unfortunately has passed, but in the early 50s did his PhD in sociology in Oxford based on our farm and the surrounding villages. And it was called the Portuguese Rural Society. And I actually met him a while in the early 2000s, and he sort of gave me his thesis to read. And there was an incredible description of how society was in the 50s of, of a system that was still very much a feudal system. All the political turmoil that we had in the 70s was due. It was normal. I mean, we had to change a system that was completely out of date. So it was very interesting to see how the society changed in a certain way from about a century into the 1970s and then what happened afterwards when Portugal joined the European Union and sort of how the family also evolved with that. And I must say, one of the things that was most interesting to us was that this area of Portugal was really a revelation that the craft is never changed. Why? Because you have surrounding villages in this area of Portugal where one village is dedicated to ceramics and they do terracotta bricks, they do fine ceramics, and another village does tapestries, and another village does leatherwork, and another one are specialized in carpentry. And these are relatively low industry craftsmen. And so throughout the last two centuries. You have many generations of craftsmanship that never change. And so we looked at that and thought, this is exactly how we have to base our work. So we're going to get this property back to life using the same techniques and almost the same families who built it initially. So you have a São Pedro, St. Peter, a village next door to Baocal, who do these most incredible terracotta bricks, and they do it in a wood-burning oven with cork oak oven. And so we did 500,000 of these terracotta bricks to refurbish all the works that we had to. So we were basically using the same ovens that were used in the 1820s, but using them now in 2010, 12, 13, to bring this project back to life. And like this, we had many situations that, and, and this is sort of the definition of slow development that we really love is that this project took 14 years 
too open to the public since the moment sort of I moved into Bahokal and to the Alentejo, and then we opened to the public in 2016. And one of the reasons that took so much time is that just to find enough roof tiles, we wanted only to use reclaimed roof tiles. It took us three years to find 400,000 reclaimed roof tiles, all more than 100 years old, so that we could do the refurbishment with that same sort of honesty that everything else had. And so the whitewash walls, I mean, we used the old techniques to make the render. All of this was something that I think you only do once in your life. I mean, I was 26 at the time, and <laughs> I felt that that's the way we had to do this project. And we finally opened in 2016, and I was already 40 years old. It was a treat to do it, and you know, it's so great to see it now. So we've opened almost seven, eight years ago. And to see it now being a place that still has that honesty, still has that sense of place. And it's very interesting that also as a project, it was recognized as a unique refurbishment because we won actually the architect who designed it with us. This project is a Pritzker Prize architect, named Eduardo Sotomora, won the Golden Lion at the Venice Architecture Biennale for this project, exactly because of that, because there was a beautiful photo of the project before the refurbishment and the project after the refurbishment, side by side. You could see the change, but it was still the same place. It wasn't over-designed, it wasn't sort of, it didn't lose its characters. It was well worth the time. Absolutely, I think that your place stands for slow travel and to be there and to immerse yourself in the sense of place and the surroundings and so many activities and ways to experience the property itself of all of which we will get into shortly, but it only makes sense that it was a slow process to do it the right way. As you said, to really be intentional about learning about its history and honoring that history and to rebuild within the means of the local craftsmen and the community and how it had been done in the right way in the past. And so I think that that's a beautiful story that you share there on it probably took more money and time than you had originally anticipated, but in the end, you did it the right way and it will be there for 200 more years to enjoy. Now, I, I want to actually take a step back even beyond when your family first came about it 200 years ago. From my understanding, there is a lot of history about the land itself dating back to the Stone Age. I believe it was once the epicenter of the tribes of that time. And then, of course, followed Roman and Moorish occupation and then became that farming village. At what point did your family really come to learn of its origin and decide to move there? And were there any interesting artifacts or historical facts that they learned along the way? When our family moved in, Alentejo was for the last three centuries had been sort of the king's hunting grounds. So there wasn't a lot of development. Actually, there, isn't, there wasn't a lot of development in Alentejo since really the Roman times, because the Middle Ages were not very eventful in, in that part of the country. There was a lot of territorial disputes between Portugal and Spain because it's right on the border. So some of the hilltop villages were military outposts on the border between Portugal and Spain, but farming development, there hadn't been a lot happening. What's interesting is that still, there were olive groves that survived, still today, that survived from Roman times. So we have 
in the property and outside of the property, considerable amounts of olive trees that have over 2,000 years. And the perimeter of some of these olive trees is about 12 meters. That's something you have to see to believe. <laughs> exactly. I mean, to understand what's the perimeter of an olive tree like that is absolutely impressive. And so the first generations, what they saw, not only at the artifacts that they found, but above all in sort of the farming traditions, is that the Romans really had settled there and made wine and made olive oil. And that's what they started to plant. And so the first two generations started what is now one of the most important wine regions of Portugal. And so back then, there were vineyards planted that then there were some new farmers that came in. And actually, there was a program that my family started to give away land if certain farmers committed to plant vineyards so that you would have a community of wine growers of, or grape growers for wine. And now these days, some of the most important brands in Portuguese wine come from our region, from our municipality specifically. And it's one of the municipalities that produces the most amount of table wine in the country. So the same goes for olive oil. I mean, there's quite a lot of small brands that make premium extra virgin olive oil in the region, including ourselves. We make both organic wine and organic olive oil, among other things, all with the same brand, San Lourdes de Bocal. So there was clearly a farm heritage that our ancestors picked on. Also, there was, very importantly, vernacular architecture. So there were some ruins that were still there from Roman times and then from the Middle Ages. Some dry stone walls that you can see were farm buildings. And there was this tradition of making terracotta bricks. And so basically all of the construction that was made in the 19th century was made with materials from the property. And in a certain way, that's what we're trying to do as well as much as we can is use all the materials from the property to refurbish. And so the great beauty of these farm buildings is that they have very little ornaments. They're super simple, two or three materials. You have stone, you have terracotta bricks that make also the floors, the tiles, and the roof tiles. And you have wood structures to support the roofs. You know, it's simple, it's beautiful, and it falls very much the influence of the Mediterranean cultures that was brought in by the Romans. And also, hence, the wine and the olive oil and the bread tradition, you know, that what they called the Holy Trinity of Roman times, which was olive oil, bread, and the wine. And so those traditions are very much present. We do make bread, we do make olive oil, and we do make wine. All of which we would love to taste in the future. Well, I think that that is so timeless to your point. The fact that this has been done and then redone, and now you're still honoring that tradition. And you can look at other architecture nowadays globally that tries to mimic what was originally there, and you can pay an arm and a leg for it elsewhere. But for you, it was important to preserve that because that's how it was done originally. And I think that that sense of place and that really honoring that past is, is really important. I do wonder though, what made you want to rebuild and renovate this property to become more of that farm retreat and to welcome in guests? 
beyond just having it be your own family home or farm? What really inspired you to share it with the broader world? Well, that, that goes back to my experience living abroad. I moved in first for college. I decided to go to a French university to study business. And coincidentally, this French university had the possibility of spending a year in the UK. At that time, I, I was living in Oxford, and then I lived in Madrid, and then I came back to Paris, and then I went to work in London. And so all of this experience, which was mid to late 90s, taught me two things, that not a lot of people in European countries that were very close to Portugal knew a whole lot about Portugal. Somebody had been to some of the beaches for the summer, but did, really didn't know a lot about Portuguese culture and Portuguese food, Portuguese crafts, Portuguese art. That was very surprising to me. And so I always kept thinking, there clearly is a story to be told on Portugal beyond the sun and beach destination in the Algarve, which was what most people knew at the time. Some knew Lisbon, some knew Porto, majority knew the Algarve, which is a touristic destination, but not a whole lot of people knew more than that. And so the second idea was that sort of insight that I had was that the Alentejo, which was where my family comes from, really is the place that I miss the most while I was away. You know, Lisbon is fantastic, but it's a cosmopolitan city, not as much as it is today, but at the time it was already a cosmopolitan city. And what I missed the most when I was abroad was the countryside and some of the beautiful, unspoiled views and landscapes of the countryside. You know, Alentejo is about a third of Portugal. It's everything that goes between Lisbon and the Algarve. It's the size of Belgium, but it only has about 4% of the Portuguese population. So it's very sparsely populated. So I kept thinking, there is a story to be told about Portugal, especially there's a story to be told about the Alentejo, because there isn't anything. I mean, you can do a road trip, but I mean, you'll have one or two agriturismos to stay on, but there's nothing with service culture. And that was a very interesting insight because I thought, listen, there is a farm there, derelict, that sooner or later, if we don't do anything with it, our family will be forced to sell. And there is no hospitality project yet where you can really experience the Alentejo in an honest, thoughtful way. And so, you know, I was very naive, obviously, at the time, because I thought I could do this in three or four years and set up an hotel and do wine and do olive oil and create a whole life around it. So obviously that, that took 14 years, but I think the insight was there, was real. You know, uh, today we have a, a property where about more than 150 people work there daily. And we have 40 keys that range from single bedroom suites to cottages, and we're able to provide a high-end service that has a sense of place, that has real local sense of hospitality. And that was the most important objective for us, is that we're not going to do the Four Seasons or the Aman in Portugal. We're going to do Barrocal, which is a family estate with a long history and add high-end service that's suited to the property and not the other way around, which is have hospitality sort of force itself 
on this existing farm or this existing set of farm buildings. This is definitely a common theme that I'm hearing as I have these conversations in that you have to take a step away in order to really appreciate what you have. And for you, that was going and spending time abroad and traveling yourself and understanding what you like as a traveler and what you miss about the comforts of home and how other cultures do it differently. And then to be able to bring that all back and to realize the beauty and the bounty of the place that you live and that your family has cherished for so many generations and to realize that a lot of the rest of the world doesn't have access to places like that. And so for you to see that there was an opportunity to share that, yes, to make a few improvements and to do so in the slow and proper format, but then to be able to do that and to be able to share this now with so many other people who now recognize the region, as you pointed out, as a wine region, Portugal itself is just such a destination today. So I think that you definitely hit the timing right. I do wonder, though, for your family, your parents, your brother, what did they think of this idea of yours? Were they big believers in it from the beginning? Were there any concerns, anything that you really had to change or include to make sure that they were supportive of this? Obviously, everyone was happy initially with the idea of refurbishing and bringing the place back to life. But obviously, as any business decision, it needs to go through a series of iterations to finance it, to approve. There's obviously a long period of project development and project management. And we had an important crisis in Portugal in in 2000, starting with subprime that then led to the intervention of the IMF, the World Bank, and the European Central Bank. In, in Portugal, it was a very scary time. I mean, we had an economic meltdown. So obviously, we all worried at times, was this simply too big of a boat? But in the end, when we opened, it was lucky timing, as you said. You know, we opened in a moment that Portugal was opening itself to the world. I think that happens quite a lot when you go through economic and social crises that you hit rock bottom. And then when you emerge, you emerge with a, a different sense of value in what you do. And so I think as a country, we went through that. And so after 2013, 14, 15 onwards, there were a series of very, very interesting projects, say of architects who had no work anymore and so opened their carpentry and started doing some crafts because there were no projects to be designed or a designer that decided to become a chef and do the recipes that his grandmother had taught him. You know, there were many, many stories, many friends who went through processes like this. So we came out of that horrible crisis with a, I would dare say, new sense of identity and pride. And so Borcal comes in Alentejo under that note where we sort of, we'd gone through a deep crisis, a financial crisis that had bigger consequences in the whole country. And we came out with a new sense of identity and purpose. And I think now it's easy to say when you look back, oh, but Portugal, you know, it was, it was there already. A lot of people had seen the beauty of it. And now in a certain way, we have to deal with overdevelopment, even in places like Lisbon. That's some of the consequences of having gone through the success story in terms of hospitality, tourism developments, craft that we went through. 
But in a certain way, although there are issues that have government issues and policy issues that have to be solved, you know, I much prefer to deal with these problems than to deal with problems of deep and profound crisis that we had 10 years ago. So we're very optimistic about how we can do things, especially in Alentejo, I must say, because that's where I develop all of our projects. We're very optimistic about working in a place not like Alentejo for the next 20 years. Well, and to your point, you've really committed yourself to that community and you're in it for the long run. You've seen the beauty that it has and you've really grown to appreciate all that you do have through good times, through bad times. And yes, the economy will ebb and flow and so will the politics. But the fact that you have stood your ground and invested in your local community and have shown that you're there to support will definitely help to secure you for those next 200 years. Hello, worldly travelers and loyal listeners. Do you know of places and people we can stay in good company with? Are you yourself a host looking to share your story and welcome in good company? We're always looking for new places to travel, new people to meet. Share who you know and where they are by sending us a note at stayinggoodcompany.com or by mentioning us on our social media channels at Stay in Good Company. We'll be sure to give you a shout out when we're there. It's time for us all to take a trip to Barokal as it stands today. Paint us a picture of your estate, a remarkable hotel of understated luxury. It's surrounded by ancient oaks, olive groves, and vineyards. What feelings do you hope to bring out of your guests and what memories do you really hope for them to take away from this experience? You know, as travelers, we we love to plan ahead when we are booking and thinking of what we're going to do. And there's a usual pattern, the Barokal guest, that I think is quite fun in a certain way, which is people tend to say, well, I want to do all of your activities. I want to meet the archaeologist. I want to do stargazing. I want to go bird watching. I want to go on a hot air balloon horseback ride, wine experience. I want to do the whole shebang. And then at the end, people arrive and there's a calmness, a tranquility, a silence that just slows you down immensely. And then people start postponing initially their activities because they much rather take it slow. And so just they wake up, breakfast, the whole experience is just so relaxing. You know, you feel that you really are immersed in deep countryside. Those activities are there for you, but you just adapt to the slower pace of life that you have there. So instead of being very, very busy from five o'clock in the morning until midnight, you just take a breathe. And you enjoy the time you have to relax, to read. So people at the end end up doing all of those activities. But instead of doing them in a single day, they take five days to do it. That's amazing. Yes, that's something that I am trying to remind myself when I travel is to exactly to your point, not book up my schedule, but just see how the place speaks to me, see who I might run into and how new opportunities might come up or things that I didn't think I wanted to try. Now I get the time to experience. So I really appreciate that you have all of those different options for your guests to enjoy. But at the end of the day, they're able to just relax and see what speaks to them in that moment. And I think that a lot of that is surrounding the ecosystem that you have built there. You've got beautiful orchards, vegetable gardens, wildflowers, and wildlife as well as some livestock and, of course, the local community, all really singing in harmony in 
the sense of place that you have created. So what does that mean to you personally, but also how do you want your guests to experience that sense of place? One of our priorities was that our team had for the great majority to be local. And so they are today. So instead of looking to hire from the industry, we really made the efforts to hire locally. And obviously, locally, there wasn't a lot of people experienced in hospitality. But I think hospitality is a relatively easy craft to learn. Um, You initially obviously have to understand certain standards. You initially obviously have to work hard to get to a certain level. Yet, a lot of what matters in hospitality is intrinsic to human values, is empathy, kindness, generosity. And these things, I think, are found in small communities like Bahokal and the surrounding villages. So it comes for the majority of people naturally that after learning all of these basic standards, they have to learn to work in hospitality. The rest comes naturally. And that's been surely true. You know, obviously, we are, our first two years of operation were challenging, to say the least. <laughs> we had a team of 100 people that knew very little of hospitality. Obviously, our general manager was a seasoned industry leader. However, a lot of the teams were not. But I guess it was worthwhile taking that route because we felt that after a while, there's still a lot of people there from the original team and there's a sense of belonging from the majority of people who work there and they speak of their lands because there's a sense of ownership because a lot of the people are from there. So I think in some places that's not possible simply because the world is ever-changing and communities blend and that's fantastic. But in a place like this, it is possible. So we were very fortunate to be able to offer that sense of place via the people who are the team to host you there. That's beautiful. The sense of pride that they have in protecting and highlighting what there is to offer there. And I think that it's, it's a great way for, to your point, everyone has that sort of nurturing element within them. You just have to then kind of coach it. And yes, there will be growing pains as you grow and scale as a business. But in the end of the day, if the guests are open to learning and to being welcomed into this new location, then of course your team is going to want to share and put their best foot forward. So I think that that's a beautiful opportunity for your community to rise to the occasion, but then for your guests to really experience the authentic experience. Now, I do want to also get into the significance of the terroir that you are on itself. So your area, Montserrat, is known for organic wines, the vineyards, and you yourself have a very self-sustaining, innovative production method to the wine that you make. So can you go into a little bit behind what makes that so unique? So Portugal, uh, fortunately, has a number, more than 100 of grape varieties that are exclusive to Portugal. And in each of the regions, you know, from the Douro Valley down to Alentejo, has both white and red grape varieties. And so we were fortunate enough, some of the vineyards that we had back from the day survived. And so we started with those and then grew our vineyards using those varieties. And so we have three or four whites varieties and again four 
red varieties. And so we make a number of different wines, but with this sense of using local grape varieties that are not very known throughout the world that make, but are varieties that are super well adapted to that climate and to that terroir. And so some of them are more known, like Turiga Nacional, which is sort of the most regarded red variety in Portugal. And some of them are very little known, like Ropeiro, which is a white wine variety that we use. What is so interesting is that we make blended wines with these varieties, and yet we're in a very hot and dry part of the country and part of Europe, but the wines are incredibly fresh, and yet we use, we use no irrigation. They're organically certified for more than 10 years now, and so we've learned how to deal with the vineyards with little water and with no pesticides, obviously. And we're able to do wines that have different approaches, say wines that are fermented in amphoras, the big clay containers, or wines that have are aged in oak. Normally, old barrels, we don't use new barrels so that the wood doesn't intervene too much on the taste of the wine. And through these different aging techniques, we're able to create a different profile of wines that is very interesting. So we have what we call our terracotta wines. We have our reserves, our oak-aged wines. And then we do special projects, which, for instance, the sparkling wine, a rosé, or some single variety wines like Torriga Nacional, or we even do at times in very special years, special wines dedicated to some of our ancestors. So the first generation, a gentleman called Papansa, he has on a very special wine, on a very special year of Alicante, which is one of the red varieties we make a wine devoted to him. Or my mother who passed a year ago, she'll have this year a wine dedicated to her from a very good vintage of Hopair. So again, these special projects or something, you know, you use your creativity in trying to work with a winemaker, the most diverse wines possible. And we've now, over the last 10 years, developed what I think is a very consistent wine brand. I love the sense of storytelling that you include with your wines and the fact that each one is unique in, in that manner and there's a story to go along with it. And I think that if you were to go to a tasting or to even just read more on your website, you can really understand the meaning behind that particular bottle. It's not just a Cabernet Sauvignon that you pick up off of a grocery store shelf, but there's there's really intentionality behind that. And I think too, what's really important to point out is the spirit of innovation that you have with these different wines that you're producing, but they're all using such ancient techniques. So while yes, you are certified organic, that's just how it was from the beginning for you. And I think that that is so special that you've been able to preserve those original practices. And today that's so well sought after. Now, transitioning to the delicious food that you offer as well from your bountiful gardens around the property. If we were to dine in good company around an intimate table at your restaurant, or perhaps in your expansive garden next to your outdoor grill, or even relaxing by your poolside bar, what are some of the local freshness and flavors that we can expect to experience on our plates and within our glasses? We try and look at some of the family stories. 
to look for some of the most interesting recipes we could do in Alentejo. And we found in one of the books of recipes from my great-grandmother a recipe of partridge. And partridge is one of the most abundant wild birds in the area. So that's obviously iconic because we've been working on it for on that recipe for 10 years now on the partridge recipe. But also there's a lot of thought going into the vegetable garden and we eat meats, but hopefully we'll eat more vegetables and more vegetables all the time and a lot more vegetables and meat. And so we've made a lot of progress over the last 10 years in our vegetable garden. And again, it all has to do with climate and a bit like the vineyards with terroir. You know, there's hundreds of varieties of tomatoes, but there's not a lot of tomatoes that withstands the heat of the summer in, in Alentejo. So we've been sort of picking the right seeds for the right season. And so we now have a variety of tomatoes, pumpkins, peppers, and all sorts of amazing vegetables. Again, that once you have an accumulative experience of 10 years working with the same team on the vegetable garden, you finally have a bank seed that you know will deliver every year on those very resourceful vegetables. And so it's fantastic to see the evolution of the menu where we're able to every week keep consistency, you know, changing seasons, changing vegetables, but we always have the sense of freshness in the menu from the vegetables coming from the garden. Oh, it sounds like it. I love that you're able to tie together the traditional recipes, but then slowly evolve that garden. To your point, it's slow travel, it's slow food, it's a slow process, but it's done in the right way. And I think that that freshness just speaks for that. Of course, you have so many different ways for your guests to experience not just the cuisine, but then the land and all of the activities that you offer. So I will go ahead and enlist a few so that you don't have to. Everything from the olive oil and wine tastings to the horse riding and birding, from beekeeping and flower arrangement workshops to boating or hot air balloon tours. You even have spa and wellness. And of course, you had mentioned stargazing, the pottery and traditional spoon carving workshops, as well as the cooking and cocktail classes. I don't know if I covered everything, but can you share some of your own personal favorites or some of the ones that you're most proud of? Well, my favorite is the archaeology guided tour. And it is my favorite because we're fortunate to work with an amazing group of archaeologists. And, you know, when you when you go for a walk in, in the countryside, depending on who your company is, you, you always have a different sort of view on the countryside. So if you walk with a landscaper, he'll explain why those trees are grouped in a certain way and why you know, the rocks have a certain, those have been moved, those that are original and out of erosion. And when you, when you go for a walk with an archaeologist, it's a completely different approach to how you see the countryside. Because for you, some of the stones are just the small stones that are just there lying in front of you are all the same. And he'll tell you the, the ones that are actually artifacts from a specific time and the ones that are random stones broken with time. And when you walk on something and he explains why this stone was used as an artifact, 
in 7,000 years ago, and he gives it the, con the right context to the way of living back then, it just completely changes your sense of time and, and history of the natural landscape. So because that was such a, a shock to me over time that this land had been inhabited for so long and lived through so many different habits and traditions, every time that I have the pleasure of having an archaeologist guide me through specific, it feels like time traveling. So that's, that's a personal favorite. That's so fascinating. I wouldn't even know what questions to ask to that point. Where do you look? What stone do you pick up and, and turn over? So that is really a fascinating way to to look at the land and to look at the the place from a different perspective through, like you said, time traveling almost. We would definitely have to take you up on that when we come to visit. <laughs> now, being a short scenic drive from several medieval hilltop towns around your area, what do you like most about those neighboring communities? Are there certain places to eat, sites to see, things to do that you'd like to support? Yes. So in the Montserrat, which is just a five-minute drive from the estates. It's a village from medieval times that's very much intact with a population of about 100 people just living there. Yet it has a restaurant owned by Isabel, who we've known for a long time. Actually, her brother used to be a shepherd at Barocal in the 70s and 60s. And Isabel is a wonderful cook. She's a bit like our, our kid's grandmother uh, when we go there. Um, and she only cooks four or five different dishes, but they're all incredible and very traditional. She cooks, she serves, she makes conversation. She doesn't speak a word of English, but you'll be able to have a full conversation with her somehow. And so it's just a treat to see this sense of old hospitality, somebody who welcomes you, you ask, she goes to the kitchen, which is right there and serves you, have a conversation, gesture conversation mostly, but that works super well. You have the wine served, she gives you a bit more of this, try this. And then, you know, the, the night just makes it easy for you because she's incredibly friendly and there's an amazing view at the, uh, at the balcony and normally you have the most beautiful lake in front of her terrace. It's the Alkeva Lake, which is a lake with more than a thousand kilometers of perimeter with 300 islands. So, I mean, the view is breathtaking. The food is amazing. The owner is super nice. What more can you ask? Oh, Absolutely. It definitely sounds like you're really welcomed into her home and you get to experience really that local culture and something too about learning from other generations. And yes, it might just be expressions if we don't speak the same language, but a lot of that, you start to see those similarities and to appreciate those little gestures, the little top off of wine or the extra roll placed on your plate is very sweet and, and memorable. Now, I'm sure I speak for both myself and our listeners and wanting to know what the future holds for you, your family, and your future guests. So what do you ask for and hope of future generations that would go on to steward Barocal's sense of place for, let's call it the next 200 years? Yes, that's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> what we're um, working on first, you know, I have three kids, my brother's a daughter and 
we don't want to force them, Baokal. You know, we're creating a model of governance that works for the future. And what is so important for us is that the company itself is sustainable. The nature of Baokal, instead of what I mean by this, is the heritage there is classified to a point where you can't change that. You can't just decide to make some refurbishing. So it is a classified heritage site these days. And we're able to create sustainability, governance, and sense of ownership where there is a bright future. There is a possibility of the company to be managed by family or managed outside of family, but it is a sustainable business for the future. That's amazing. What can future guests look forward to from Barocal? Are there any projects that are coming soon, ones that you're most excited to share more about? Yes, there are. We're building some farmhouses separate from the hotel. So there are some plots of land that are now being developed uh, next to these stone outcrops. And so we're building homes, four-bedroom, five-bedroom homes with swimming pools that are sort of detached farmhouses with a sense of ownership of the views that you don't see one house from the other. So we're slowly building those again. (laughs) We're now building two. There'll be more two to come. And with those houses, we'll be obviously creating a new different product for our guests. So instead of being in the village, in the farm buildings, in a room or in a cottage, you're able to live in a proper farmhouse with the same level of service, but detached in the middle of the farmscape, if you want want to call it that, where you have privacy and views to the vineyard, to the olive groves, to Montserrat, to the lake. So we're very excited about these new projects. I think in two years, we'll launch this, this new product of hospitality. And I think it will be very, very interesting because it's a fine balance between creating vernacular architecture structures yet the comfort and the warmth in its interiors for you to feel at home. We've been designing these for over, I don't know, eight years now. So we're finally building them and we have our own internal architecture team and we're very happy to start working on them so that we can launch them in a couple of years. Wow. I cannot wait to get a tour of those. They definitely sound so immersive and so seclusive in the fact that you can really just, again, experience all that that land, that terroir has. So I look forward to seeing how those do. Hello, worldly travelers and loyal listeners. Are you too planning your upcoming travels and in search of independently owned and operated stays and experiences to visit along the way? Head on over to stayinggoodcompany.com or our social media channels at Stay in Good Company and drop us a note with where you're going and when, and we'll be sure to set you up in good company for your trip. Just don't be surprised if we hide away in your suitcase and join you in your journeys. So now that we know what it's like to stay in good company at Barocal, we've learned and grown in good company with you, Jose, and thus I have a few final questions, what I'd like to call a toast to table topics. What is your favorite family recipe you learned from the generations before you? Uh, partridge. The partridge. That is something I have never tried and I look forward to trying. I'd <laughs> ask for a recipe, but I don't know where I would pick up partridge in my local farmer's market. <laughs> <laughs> now, what would be your go-to wine and food pairing? So 
the ham, the Iberico ham made with the black pork and definitely paired with red wine and uh, fresh goat cheese. So that, that, that's sort of my perfect snack. And the wine that I would pick is our 1820 wine, which is a wine that celebrates the year of acquisition of the property in the 19th century. That sounds like a perfect picnic for me as well. <laughs> if you could only source your food one way, would you choose to forage, fish, hunt, or garden? Ah, garden. Garden, absolutely. Now, do you have a favorite season at Barucal, and why is that? Winter. It's the perfect lights. I don't mind the cold. It's never too cold here. But I do love the low lights and the reflection that has sort of on the wintry tones of the lands. I love fireplaces as well, so we set the fire in the fire pits and have a drink outside before having dinner inside. So winter is our favorite time at the farm. That's such an interesting perspective. I've never heard an answer focused so much on light. But to your point, the picture that you create is just so cozy and so symbolic of the season too. I love that answer. Now, where is your favorite spot to sneak away to on your property? We have some very impressive boulders and when we go for a walk and even with our kids. So we have a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old and a 3-year-old. Um, rock climbing is sort of the family activity that we prefer to do together, especially the two boys. So there are some very tall boulders at Pahokal that you need sort of to jump from one place to the other. And a few of them have sort of a secret hidden sort of caves that you can walk into. So that's, the kids love that. We love to do it with them. They're definitely in that age of exploring. So that's perfect that you have that within your own property. Now, do you have a favorite family tradition with them, whether or not they're shared with guests? Funny that you said picnics, just you mentioned them. Picnics is our favorite family tradition. We do quite a lot of them in different times of the year. And it is Super easy. You can do it by the lake. You can do it in the vineyard, by on beneath a tree. So it's something we do often. That's my favorite way to travel. Anytime I go to a new town or even a, a city, I try to go to the farmer's market, pick up the local cheese, wine, bread, meats, and just find a park and to really take in all the surroundings. That's very special. All right. And to not overstay our welcome, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking, if our listeners haven't already done so during this episode, where can they go to book a stay, an experience, or an event at Barocal? Very easy, barocal.pt. So funny enough, half of our reservations are direct. So it's great feedback that we have. We have a lot of reservations that are repeat reservations, guests that come every year. So if you have a look at our websites, our booking engine is very, very easy to go through. And I believe you also sell some of your crafted goods online as well there. Is that correct? Yes. And our wine and our olive oil. So the shipping process should be easy to the majority of the states in the U.S. Perfect. We'll be sure to link to that and be able to enjoy a taste of bottle call, even if we can't get there later this year. Now, where can our listeners and your guests follow along your journey? Do you have a newsletter, social media channels that you'd like to share as well? Yes. So we have a newsletter that you can subscribe in our websites and we take great care and making that newsletter worthy of reading. It's something that we consider a special 
way of communicating, although overused these days, we do give a lot of care and thought to our newsletters. Wonderful. Well, obrigado for joining us and for sharing with us your labor of love with a long history that we hope lives on for, again, another 200 years. Thank you so much, Molly. It was a treat. Thank you for listening along. I hope you found yourself to be in good company. I know I did. Be sure to rate and review, invite your friends along, and find out more ways to stay in good company in the show notes below. Until next time, remember to slow down and to savor the company you're in. Cheers, my friends.